0: from Story Mechanics and VPU. Hello. Hello.
1: I'm on Zoom with Linda Jackson, the current director of the Department of Forensic Science, and her colleague, Brad Jenkins. He's the Forensic Biology Program Manager at the DFS. I've heard lots of good things about Jackson and her leadership at the lab, and things started out really friendly. Wait
2: a minute. Let me see if I can... Turn off this blurry background.
1: But as soon as I asked about Mary Jane Burton, it started to feel tense. In fact, before the interview, Jackson had said she wouldn't answer questions about Mary Jane, but I gave it a shot. I have now heard from a number of sources that maybe there were some questions around the quality of Mary Jane's work. Is that something that you're aware of? Well, I. I had said initially that I wasn't going to talk about Mary
2: Jane Burton, and so I I, I have no information directly about her, um, which is why I I am not going to talk about her history and and uh, because I don't really have direct knowledge, and so I don't feel that it's appropriate for me to talk about.
1: Jackson's had a long career at the DFS. She started in 1995 as a forensic scientist, moved up through the ranks, and in 2013 became the director. She stepped into the role in the midst of the state reviewing Mary Jane's case files for clippings. Okay, she was the the analyst at the center of this massive project that did, you know, continue under while you were director. And uh, it just feels important, I guess, to be able to talk about her um, and her work. Yeah, I mean, you know, the interesting thing about this This
2: project is that a good number, if not all, of her cases had testing redone in them when they met the criteria of someone being convicted. And so there's a large sample of cases where additional testing was done.
1: Of course, I knew about this additional testing. And it's great that a lot of Mary Jane's cases got that second look. But as we discussed a few episodes back, I'm concerned the project didn't get to the root of the problem. It didn't look at the original serology work, and it's still not clear to me how many of Mary Jane's cases were actually tested. That's actually a number that I was trying to figure out, essentially like what proportion of the cases that she worked did get DNA testing.
2: I definitely do not have that information. I know that we located the swaps and cuttings in over 3,000 cases but I, I don't know for her specifically uh, what those numbers would be. I don't know how the information is stored and if that information exists.
1: Okay. Is there someone else who might know those numbers? Brad is going to come and talk.
3: <laughs> you know, you, you ask a good question, but I, I, to my knowledge, that was not um, data that we tracked. I know that We had 860 cases that we did the DNA testing on, and we had a confirmed confection. But how many of those were her cases? I don't, we do not have that number. And I I think that the only way that we would know is we'd have to go back through each case and
1: review it manually. I try a different approach. I ask about Gina. Through our reporting, we met a woman who worked at the lab in the late 70s whose name was Gina Demas. Does that ring any bells? I don't know. Okay. Um, well, I wanted to sort of share this with I you. I told them just, the broad strokes of Gina's uh, story and her allegations about Mary Jane's work, including the fact that Mary Jane was falsifying test results.
2: I was not aware of that. Obviously, those types of, I mean... Those types of uh, activities are (laughs) very concerning, and we expect people to act ethically, and we expect them to act with scientific integrity. That's what our job is, and those are part of our organizational values and in our mission.
1: I didn't know what to make of this conversation. Are these simply platitudes? Or is the lab finally paying attention? A few days later, I got an email from the DFS, the one I shared with Gina in our last episode. ...examination results in certain cases. The department is an accredited forensic laboratory with an ethical and professional obligation to investigate these types of allegations. Boy, can I have a plaque that says that? I mean, an investigation certainly sounds like the kind of accountability that is needed here. But before we get too excited, what should we expect from the DFS? What is the lab's record of reviewing misconduct within its own four walls? In this episode, we take a deeper look at the Virginia lab, and what we find is a problem much bigger than one forensic scientist. I'm Tessa Kramer, and this is Admissible. Ben.
4: Hey, it's been a minute.
1: I know. How have things been going?
4: Uh, It's been Zooey, but um, (laughs) I'm excited to turn to this.
1: Meet Ben Pavier, VPN state politics reporter. He's got a knack for investigating government agencies and bureaucratic misconduct. Ben did some reporting for us and told me he wanted to talk about this one case.
4: Today I made a document of Mistakes made along the way. Maybe mistakes is the wrong word, but, like, fuck-ups, for lack of a better word. And it's pretty lengthy.
1: I'm fighting a cold, so I'll mostly hand the mic to Ben for this episode.
4: This is a story about a man named Earl Washington Jr.
3: Did you kill that woman? No, sir. But you told the police that you
0: did? Yes, sir.
4: This is Earl Washington talking to a reporter a few years after he was sentenced to death for the 1982 rape and murder of a woman in Northern Virginia. The case had gone unsolved for about a year, until police charged Washington after his arrest for an unrelated crime.
0: Why did you tell the police that you did it? I don't know. You don't know? No,
4: Washington was a black man with developmental disabilities. The main piece of evidence against him was this confession that he's reflecting on here.
0: Did you understand then that you were being accused of a murder? No, sir.
4: It was a confession riddled with inconsistencies following a long police interrogation. Despite this, Washington was convicted and given the death penalty. At one point, Washington came within nine days of being executed. He would later say he could hear the electric chair being tested from his cell. Washington's lawyers managed to get a temporary stay of execution. But a few years later, his execution date was looming again. This time, DNA had entered the forensic picture. For this reason, Governor Doug Wilder orders last-minute DNA testing on some of the crime scene evidence, a semen stain from the perpetrator of the assault. And based on the results, the governor calls off the execution. He commutes Washington's sentence to life in prison. But what's strange here is the state refuses to share the actual DNA results. They won't even share them with Washington's attorneys. That is until a really surprising moment about six years later. Tonight on Frontline, the case for innocence. A Frontline reporter takes an interest in Earl Washington's case. Washington is still in prison serving his life sentence, The reporter, a documentary filmmaker named Ofra Bickel, sits down with the director of the lab, Dr. Paul Ferrara. Paul Ferrara is a name we've heard before. He's the guy Gina first approached to try to get the lab to do something about Mary Jane Burton. Later, he'd become the director of the lab, and it's under his leadership that the Virginia lab begins to establish itself as a pioneer in the use of DNA technology. So, Frontline asks Ferrara about those mysterious DNA results, the results that were enough to commute Washington's death sentence to life in prison, the results that the state had kept under lock and key. When Frontline asked Dr.
3: Ferrara for the test results of the blanket, to our surprise, he handed them to us.
4: With cameras rolling, Ferrara decides to share the results of the lab's DNA testing. The results of the test were explosive. Earl Washington
3: was definitively excluded. The results of our testing on the blanket are much more definitive in being able to eliminate Earl Washington as a possible contributor.
4: That's Ferrara there. He's basically saying on national television, that guy who came within nine days of execution, that guy who is still serving a life sentence, we've got DNA evidence that seems to show he was innocent. This sparks public outcry and another round of DNA testing. The technology had advanced a lot. Washington's attorneys, understandably, don't exactly trust the DFS with this task. We wanted the DNA testing to go to an independent laboratory. This is Peter Neufeld, co-founder of the Innocence Project.
5: He was part of Washington's legal team. But Paul Ferraro was adamant that his DNA unit was as good as any in the country and they would do great testing. Virginia insists
4: on doing the DNA testing themselves. This part gets a little complicated, but the bottom line is, again... The lab gets a little cagey about the results. It was suggestive of his innocence, but that's as far as they would go. But it's enough for the governor, by now that's Jim Gilmore, to grant Washington a conditional pardon. Finally, after 17 years, Washington is released from prison. But Washington's legal team is like, eh, that seems kind of fishy. So they take matters into their own hands.
5: They send the evidence to their own DNA expert. He got an absolutely clean result, uh, not only completely excluding Earl Washington. But also pointing to a different perpetrator. Somebody else who they're able to identify through the convicted offender database.
4: A man named Kenneth Tinsley, who was serving time for other sexual assaults. Something the Virginia lab should have spotted on their own. In other words... Their DNA unit sort of blew it. So Washington's legal team is
5: like, whoa. They want to get to the bottom of what happened. We suggested that they do an independent audit of what went wrong. And they said, no, we can take care of our own house and uh, we'll give you a report. Newfeld says he tried to convince Ferrara. We basically begged him not to do an internal audit. And we said, this is just not gonna go well for the laboratory or for you. And I liked Paul. And uh, he just said, no, this is what we're doing. I'll take care of it. And his internal audit said there were no problems with the laboratory. We're perfect. Well, that was ridiculous. And then we went public saying it was ridiculous.
4: They go to the press. There's a story in The Washington Post. And the case catches the attention of then-Governor Mark Warner. If there was a screw-up of the lab, I was very committed at that point to kind of damn the torpedoes. We're going to get the truth no matter what it costs, no matter who's... Feathers we have to ruffle, and if our lab was screwing up, we're going to acknowledge it. Warner orders an
5: outside audit to find out exactly what the hell went on behind the scenes. They issued a report that reached a very different conclusion about the quality of work in that laboratory. An audit of Virginia's crime lab found serious problems in the way it handled DNA evidence.
2: The state lab's chief DNA analyst, Jeffrey Bann, had aired in both DNA tests.
4: The outside audit finds that the lab's analysis back in 1993, the one that kept Washington as a suspect, was questionable. And they said the lab was wrong to rule out Tinsley as a suspect in its second round of testing
2: outside and internal pressures to resolve the case had a detrimental effect on the analysts' decisions, examinations and reports.
4: The review concludes that the lab was under political pressure from the state to get results. It's a real stain on their
5: reputation. And it really also tarnished the reputation and legacy of Paul Ferrar who, you know, before that was known as one of the more enlightened members of the forensic lab director community, but his behavior in the Earl Washington case really tarnished that, much to the displeasure of Pete Marone. Pete Marone, the guy who Paul Ferrara
4: hired in 1978 in the wake of Gina's lawsuits, the guy who was himself the director of the lab for the bulk of the state's DNA testing and notification project. Neufeld
5: has a hunch about why Pete was so unhappy with the audit. Pete would do anything to defend the legacy of Paul Ferrara. He was extremely unhappy with the independent review and what it showed about, not just about the laboratory, but about what was wrong with the internal audit. The bottom line is there was a, a cover-up. When the cover-up was uncovered, there was a, a mentality of circling the wagons and defending our own. But the whole notion of trying to cover up either incompetencies in the laboratory or recklessness in the laboratory, and then protect the institution and those higher up in the institution, is not unique to the Virginia laboratory. It's something we see in all kinds of institutions and systems throughout our society.
4: Earl Washington was finally granted a full pardon in 2007. The DNA evidence was just rock solid that Earl Washington was innocent, and that's what led me to grant that pardon. This is Tim Kaine, former Virginia governor and current U.S. Senator. Look, I think if you want to put the building blocks together of why Virginia has gone from death penalty capital of the United States to an abolitionist state, the injustice done to Earl Washington was one of the building blocks. Tim Kaine was the fourth Virginia governor, after Wilder, Warner, and Gilmore, to get involved in Earl Washington's case. But it was a later governor, Ralph Northam, who fought to abolish the death penalty in the state. In a 2021 speech, Northam told Washington's story to make his case.
3: This innocent man came within nine days of being executed. Ladies and gentlemen, we cannot do that in Virginia. If 10 days had passed, we would ask ourselves today How did Virginia execute an innocent man?
4: You gotta wonder, if there hadn't been so much public attention, would the state have ever released the DNA results? Without that independent audit, would we even know about the lab's mishandling of this case? But there's something else, something that didn't even come up in the audits, something arguably even worse. While Washington was sitting on death row the state was sitting on blood tests that should have excluded Washington as a suspect from day one. More on that after the break. To explain what happened with the serology testing in this case, we have to go back to 1982. At this point, Earl Washington wasn't even a suspect. The serologists tested a blood stain from the crime scene, one they thought came from the murderer. The lab determined that this perpetrator had an extremely rare genetic marker in his blood, something called Transferrin CD. This marker is so rare that the police use it to rule out suspects, people who don't have that type. When police arrested Earl Washington in 1983, they tested his blood for that rare transferrin CD marker. And nope, he didn't have it.
3: There was an emergency meeting at the crime lab.
4: This is one of Washington's defense attorneys, Bob Hall.
3: Between the prosecutor, the lead investigator for the state police, and the lab examiner who had tested Earl's blood, there were no notes taken. But immediately following that meeting, the lab certificate was amended to say, transparent testing, inconclusive.
4: The analyst changed the results she'd gotten a year earlier without any retesting. The change looks small, but it was enough to keep Washington in the suspect
1: pool. If this feels like deja vu, same. This is very similar to what we saw Mary Jane Burton do in the Winston Scott case and in some of the cases from Gina's documents. It's the same pattern we keep seeing. A serologist getting a result that should have excluded a suspect and then manipulating that result just enough to keep them in the pool of possible perpetrators. But this is not one of Mary Jane's cases. Do you know who the analyst was? I can check
4: here. Um, Deanne Dabbs.
1: Deanne Dabbs the trainee who started shortly after Gina, the one who shared her concerns but kept her head down during Gina's fight with the lab and went on to have a long career in forensics. I called Deanne to see what she has to say about this. I wanted to ask if you could just explain what happened with the transferrin protein in that case. I don't know. I mean, I really
2: don't remember. I remember the name Earl Washington, and I, I don't really remember all the details of the
1: case. I mean, it's just been way, way too long ago. I try to jog her memory. After Earl Washington was arrested, we reissued an amended report that found the transfer to be inconclusive instead of that unique protein. Do you remember any of that? No.
4: <laughs> too long ago. Deanne was also questioned about this during a civil suit in 2003. Back then, she did offer an explanation. She testified that she had stumbled on an article in a scientific journal about transferrin, which made her question the results in some of her old cases, including Washington's. So she decided to go back and change those old findings. And Deanne just happened to find that article and change the test result a few days after meeting with investigators. I filled Tessa in on what I'd learned and what I still didn't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, that seems really very suspect to me. (laughs) But there
4: are no notes from that meeting, so we don't know.
1: (laughs) I mean, isn't it kind of crazy? That was a meeting, was it between the police officers or the prosecutors in Deanne?
4: I think it was state police, the local prosecutor, and local police. And then Deanne.
1: I don't know. Am I wrong? Does it seem like maybe those people shouldn't even be having meetings? That's the
4: thing. Like, is this common? But then the the timing of her going to change it is just like such a red flag, right? And so I tried to find that journal article she was talking about. I dug into like the archives of the Journal of Forensic Science from 1983, which, which is when she says this all happened. There are 126 results and there's just nothing remotely related to like... Blood proteins, transferrin, all the keywords. Now, I didn't read every article in the Journal of Forensic Science. I could have missed it. So we can't totally rule out Deanne's explanation.
1: Still, hearing that Deanne was the analyst in this case, it kind of rattles my understanding of the story I've been telling. Deanne may not have taken a stand the way Gina did back in the 70s, but I've always seen her as one of the good ones. Like a good scientist. Gina, too. She describes Deanne as meticulous, no bullshit. So what does it mean if one of the good ones is susceptible to
5: doing this kind of thing, too? It wasn't just Mary Jane Burden. Here's Peter Newfeld again. When something goes wrong, there's a tendency to say, oh, well, it's just her. To just say it was one person's fault and make her the scapegoat that doesn't sit well with me because any competent laboratory would uncover those problems of competence or negligence. And if they didn't, then they're to blame. These are systemic problems. Uh, You can't just look at one person. You had a similar problem with uh, Dabs in the Earl Washington case, in the Keith Harwood case, which was another case you may have come across. I have come across this case.
4: Keith Harwood was wrongfully convicted of a rape and murder. He served 34 years before DNA testing cleared him.
5: When we went back and looked at the original serology work in that case, Keith Harwood was excluded. But the analyst? He called it an inclusion.
4: This wasn't Mary Jane Burton. And it wasn't D.N. Dabbs. It was another analyst, a guy named David Pompasini. But it's the same story. The serology results should have excluded a suspect long before we could test the DNA.
5: It's only after you get the exoneration that you do that deconstruction. You go back and you look at all the other evidence that was used against Keith and you find out that a police officer engaged in misconduct and you find that the forensic serology analyst working for the state of Virginia lied about the results. Whether the analyst lied or was
4: just incompetent, we can't say for sure. But the Harward case prompted another review at the DFS, this time of the serology work. The DFS analyzed about 200 cases from the analysts in the Harwood case and some others. And this review was led by Brad Jenkins. He was on Tesla's call with the DFS director, Linda Jackson. And what did the review find?
3: And uh, today we're going to talk about the review of serology cases.
4: Here's what Jenkins said at a public DFS meeting in 2020.
3: Based on the current review, no duplication of the issue was observed uh, in the Harwood case and no identification of other isolated or systemic issues that would warrant continued review of additional cases. No further reviews are recommended.
5: Hey, are you Brad? I'm Brad. Hey. good
4: morning. Sorry, I got a bunch of gear. No, that's all right. Nice, nice to see you. You. you able to find it okay? I went to the lab to ask Jenkins some follow-up questions. We had a rape case and there looked
3: to be those serology typing results that were in the case file, but they weren't in the report. Did you ever get to the bottom of why that was? We, we don't really know. You know, the, um, and so that's, that's the short answer, um, but the take home from the serology review, the cases we looked at, we didn't see a trend of that, of where you'd have exculpatory type results in the notes and not reported in the certificate of analysis. Some of the attorneys involved in the case were starting to talk about, hey, why is this here? We also saw in the case notes, and so we decided to go back and look on our own and say, hey, is is this a trend out there that we need to be concerned about, or is this an isolated incident?
4: The review came up with a number of findings, some procedures that wouldn't be kosher today but weren't uncommon back in the day. But one thing caught our attention. Another thing that that you all talked about is that there's some sort of typographical error. Can you explain what that might have been? Anyone writing
3: up reports, you you might put a typo in there. And so you'll write down this is a type A, but you actually look in the notes and it looks like it's a type B. And so what appears to have happened is somebody just did a typographical error. And you have to think, this is before computers. And so everybody's trying to type
4: on the old-fashioned typewriters. There's no spell check. You know anything like that? I mean, I don't know how you would know this, but is there any chance somebody deliberately would have changed those results? Or
3: when we saw the typo, one of the cases that you're speaking of, even with the typo, it didn't match the defendant. And so we we really didn't come across cases that I recall where someone had it looked like someone had gone in and changed all of the reporting results to match the defendant, even though the notes said something different.
4: To be clear, the lab deserves credit for taking this on. They've done this kind of review with several forensic techniques, serology, hair analysis, and, of course, there was the DNA testing and notification project. Many labs don't even bother.
3: We do a lot of post-conviction testing, and that's a really important part of our work to see if we can uh, eliminate
4: individuals from crimes. But Peter Newfeld says the review was inadequate
5: plagued by similar problems we've seen with the lab's other audits and reviews. We didn't get to see all the raw data. We don't know the extent of the audit. There was a degree of secrecy and lack of transparency, so uh, we don't really know.
4: Not to mention, in the case of an analyst erasing and changing results, like Mary Jane did, that wouldn't even show up in this review. Erasing the record books would cover up the tracks of these kinds of discrepancies we're seeing variations on a theme. Serology results that should have excluded someone who DNA later proved innocent. And yet every time they're treated as isolated incidents. In a way, it's the same line the lab has been using since Gina Demas raised her concerns in
5: the 1970s. It's just one case. Clearly, there were fundamental problems of either competence or malfeasance in the laboratory, but more importantly, There were no controls in place to uncover incompetence and malfeasance. And when it was uncovered by somebody, rather than move forward and try and resolve it, remediate it, instead it's let's repress it, suppress it, let's go after the whistleblower and protect our own. And this is
4: why we don't have a lot of confidence in the lab to review and respond to the concerns about Mary Jane Burton's work to review Gina's claims and Mary Jane's entire caseload thoroughly and transparently. There's just too much of an incentive for the lab,
5: for any crime lab, to diminish the scope of a problem. Prosecutors, government officials, police, and uh, lab directors are petrified that it's not simply, you know, one exoneration here, one exoneration there. But if you lift that rock up and you see all the pus and bile that's beneath it, you may be talking about dozens or hundreds of cases. They're petrified of that.
1: And that's my concern is that even if we you know, publish this story with this documentation that we have, they'll still find a way to call this isolated incidents and keep it internal and not actually take meaningful steps.
5: There, there are so many systemic problems with the criminal legal system in this country and the incentive keep that rock firmly on the ground and not lift it up and see what's underneath it is so strong for so many decades or centuries that, I mean, hopefully, you know, your piece and other pieces like it will cumulatively have an impact, but uh, it is an uphill, you know, Sisyphian undertaking.
1: I can't unsee everything that I've learned about Mary Jane Burton, serology, forensics more broadly. The scope of the problem here is massive, which leaves us with a big question. What can we do? Is there a way to truly reform forensics?
2: These little tweaks at the margins aren't going to
1: quote-unquote fix anything
2: because the system is doing what it was designed to do.
1: That's coming up next time on Admissible.
0: This is produced and hosted by Tessa Kramer. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn. Original reporting by Tessa Kramer and Sophie Behrman, with additional reporting by Ben Pavier and Whitney Evans. Our editor is Danielle Elliott, with additional editing by Ellen Horn. Our production team is Dana Bialik, Chloe Wynn Gilda DeCarli, Leslie Nyer, Kristen Vermilia, and Kim Naderfane Peterson. Gavin Wright is VPM's managing producer for podcast. Meg Lindholm is the director of podcast production. Sound design and mix by Charles Michelet. Music by Del Toro Sound and Story Mechanics. And with additional music by APM. Our theme music is by me, Brian J. Howard of Del Toro Sound. Admissible Season 1, Shreds of Evidence, is produced by Story Mechanics and VPM. Virginia's home for public media. We are distributed by iHeartMedia.